All right, hey, good to see you, church. Go ahead, Song of Solomon. We're going to be in chapter 5 and bleed into a little bit of, of chapter 6. I want to say hello to the other Biltmore Church campuses. And one of the things we do, we rejoice uh, together when we were one church in a number of locations, and we rejoice when one awesome thing happens with another because we are joined at the hip, literally. So here's what happened the last, as you know, as many of you know, uh, the last five or six years we've had, when we launched the Hendersonville campus, we uh, leased it, did a, did a five-year lease with an option to either buy or do another lease. And just so you know, and to the leadership team uh, this past week, or maybe it's probably 10 days ago at this point, but we have officially uh, purchased the Hendersonville campus. So we're no longer, we're no longer renters. We've moved into the neighborhood and we officially uh, own that baby. So all that being said, um, be praying for them and pray for, uh, as, as we just look and see how can that just expand and continue to reach there in the uh, Hendersonville area. And also wanted to say hello to the folks joining online. One of the things I mentioned last week that is overlooked over the last 22 months uh, with all the trials and tribulations and difficulties and uncertainties is the way that uh, God has actually expanded some of the ministries we were able to do. And one of the main things that has happened is the online uh, ministry has expanded uh, I don't even know how many times over and over and over again. So we've got folks from different places around the country watching. Today we've got folks from Maryland. All right, we've got folks from uh, the great state of Georgia. We've got folks watching from probably the only place that people in WNC even have a hint of envy when they look out the window, and that is the great state of Hawaii is uh, are watching today. And I tell you what, I'll do a special shout out to the Smith family, because they are hosting a watch party in Grand Ledge, Michigan. So put your hands together for the Smith family. Great job. Great job living on mission. All right, so great job on that. Here's where we are. We are, uh, uh, we are in this fifth week. We are in week number five of the Song of Solomon. All right, and today is not nearly as uncomfortable as last week. But again, one of the things we're doing, where we're going is uh, after we fin- we'll finish up Song of Solomon next week, and then, the, uh, then we'll, go, we'll spend four weeks in Romans chapter 8, arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible. We're then going to kind of go into 21 days of prayer. 21 days of prayer we often do in August. We're going to do it as we lead up to Easter. Already be thinking about what's that thing that you really want God to do. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. So already be thinking, what's that, what's that one thing? What's that two things you're just going to cry out to God for for 21 days for the glory of God and for the good of other people? All right, that's 21 days of prayer. Then we're going to have this little thing called Easter. We're going to go ahead and have Easter. And then we are going to jump in from right after Easter all the way until the end of the summer. And that is we're going to go to the gospel according to John, and our team has already put together a ton, and they're in the process of putting together a ton of resources, journals, reading plans, all that stuff as we go through the gospel of John together as, uh, as a church family. So here's where we are, Song of Solomon. If you hadn't been with us, the Song of Solomon is one of the most unusual, most poetic books in the whole Bible. It is in that section of your Bible right in the middle. There's five books there that are typically called wisdom literature. Wisdom is how do I navigate certain areas of life for the glory of God and the joy of my own soul. And so Proverbs is one of those books that talks about a variety of areas. Psalms talks about how do we have wisdom in the worship life. Job talks about how do we actually have joy and glorify God in the midst of our trials. Ecclesiastes is one of those, the fourth book, and that's the one that talks about how do I have joy and glorify God in my relationship to the world and stuff and things. And then there's the Song of Solomon. It's how do I glorify God 
in my relationships, particularly what we kind of typically refer to as romantic relationships. And what the Song of Solomon has shown us is it follows the romantic journey between a man and a woman as they go from attraction, then to dating, and then to covenant marriage, and then to the honeymoon, and then believe it or not, we don't, it hadn't been a matter of days after their honeymoon when believe it or not, they have their first fight. They have some conflict. As a matter of fact, there's one chapter on the honeymoon in the Song of Solomon, and there's two chapters on conflict. 20 to 25% of the whole book is on basically how do I fight for the glory of God? How do I fight with my spouse in a way that is redemptive, in a way that is reconciliatory? How do I actually do that? And I know some of you are like, well, I didn't know, Mary, I didn't know, I didn't know you strong, I didn't know strong Christians really fought. Well, you know, some of y'all fought on the way here, all right? Some of you fought on the way here. You're like, you know what? We're going to be late again. You make us late. Some of you fought and you're watching online because that's what the fight was about. Should we go back to church yet? No, we're going to watch on, okay, whatever. Well, our first fight, and I had this, we had this discussion. I couldn't remember the first fight I had with Lori, but after some discussion, we decided that she thought we had one actually during engagement. I don't have any recollection of having a fight during engagement. I have none. But uh, apparently we did, but the one I'm going to use was probably, oh, man, I mean, it was maybe a year and a half after we got married. First fight I recall. True story. We're in seminary. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm in seminary. We live in seminary housing, which at that point was like 400 square feet, a part of a triplex. And I was coming home from work. And again, we, she was at that point, she was maybe, maybe five months pregnant with Tyler. And we, you know, we were both going to graduate in the next few months. And uh, she was in nursing school. Again, I was finishing up seminary. And uh, I come to the back door. And I had, you know, the back door. And you put the key in. And I opened it. It had those. And had a chain lock on there. And it was locked. It's like, that's not good. And I, so I opened it. And it's cracked that much. I said, honey, honey, I'm home. I'm home. She's like, go away. Not good. Not good. Why? Why? I, can't, I hate it. What? What are you? Hey, it's messed up. And I'm like, what is going on? I mean, no, no sisters, no, none of that stuff. I'm like, what has happened to my beautiful wife? And so finally, after a lot of coaxing, she takes the chain off. She takes the chain off the door. She opens the door, and her hair is jet black. If you don't know my wife, her hair is not jet black. All right, it's. It's a couple different colors, but normally it's Auburn, all right? That's all, I, that's all I knew about is Auburn. And it was jet black. And then Mr. Sensitivity here, Mr. Smooth, the first words out of my mouth, I mean, as the Lord is my witness, the first words out of my mouth was not, we're going to get through it. It was not, baby, look beautiful. It's not, it, it was, you know, my first words were, and it just came out, was, what happened? That was it. <laughs> w- what happened? What happened to your head? That's what happened. And if the tears were not already flowing at that point, they just, it was like a waterfall at that point. And apparently what happened, by the way, what they said is because of all the stuff going on with their body, being pregnant, that's what messed with the dye, and that whatever happened, um, foul ball on my part. That was, our, that was our first fight. And so we've had a few since then, but the point is there's a myth that healthy and happy marriages don't have conflict, that don't have fights Healthy marriages, listen to me, have learned how to fight fairly. They've learned how to resolve conflict for the glory of God. Because here's the deal. Every 
marriage is going to fight. Every marriage is going to have conflict. I'm not just talking about little funny stuff like, oh, what happened to your hair? I'm talking about you're going to have some conflict that goes on. You, there's no way that you can put one sinner in the house with another sinner in a covenant relationship and not have some serious problems. Now, I would say on one hand, that's the truth. On the other hand, listen to me. Some of you are going to push back on this. Most problems in marriages are fairly generic. They're fairly generic. I mean, what you have a problem over here, you have a problem over there, they have a problem in Brevard, all that, that same thing. Most problems are not unique. What splits couples up is that one or both don't know how to handle conflict so that minor things don't blow up into major things. That's why earlier in this Song of Solomon, it's like, hey, we got to watch out for those little foxes because they're going to come and destroy the vineyard. You can't let those small things become enormous things so it ruins everything. And so here's the, the summation is that God is glorified when two people who have been reconciled to him through repentance and faith in Jesus learn how to live for a lifetime in reconciliation with one another. All right? So this is poetry, but there are some principles. The principles are first and foremost maritally. This is really in almost for any case relationally as well. So as we walk through this, I just want you to understand uh, these are not perfect people. You don't have perfection with King Solomon. That's a different subject we'll deal with at some point. I mean, you talk about a flawed individual, absolutely. This was probably early in his life, but she's not perfect either. You will see that. We say in this church all the time, there's one hero in this book, it's Jesus. But you and I can take principles from these two people. All right, let me give you three. Principle number one, just jot this down. Somewhere in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, great is your reward in heaven if you take notes. So just jot this thing down. I promise you will need them at some point. At some point, you will need them. Just jot this one down whether you understand or not. When it comes to conflict and how to fight fair, just make a commitment to say, okay, I'm going to work on how do I respond in grace. I'm going to respond in grace. Look at verse 2. I slept. This is the woman talking. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. So here's what's going on. He apparently is late. When it says that his hair is wet with dew, it's the idea is he's been sweating all day, probably in the vineyard. He's coming home later than he expected. He obviously forgot to text. She maybe made dinner. He didn't show up for dinner. And now he's finally showing up and she has locked the door. And you're like, well, how late, how late was he? Well, you're going to see verse 3. His wife had already showered and she went to bed. Verse 3, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? No, granted, this is a long way from chapter 4. My gazelle. My stag, they are a gazelle leaping over the mountains. It's come a long way since that. It's come a long way since come to your garden and eat the choicest fruits. I mean, that's a long way now. Basically, if you look at it, and you got to go to seminary to get this, but the Hebrew, when she says, I have put on um, my garment and I can't soil my feet, that's Hebrew for not tonight, buddy. All right, that's basically what that means. All right, that's what it means. It's, it's not happening tonight. 
You can have all your smooth talk. You can have all your suave ways. You can have all of that stuff. It's not going to happen. You think you're going to miss dinner? You think you're going to come in late? You think you're not going to text? All right, that's not going to work. And here's what she basically is like. I showered. I took off my makeup. I put on my Snuggie. And I am, I am sleepy. Now, here's what's happening. Both of them are being selfish to some degree at this point. Both of them are forgetting covenant and they're thinking consumer. I expected this and this is not what happened. I expected him to do this and that didn't happen. I expected her to receive me this way and that didn't happen. And this happens every day in our households. Married people, describe the last time you had a conflict with your spouse. If you were to describe it, what you would say is this. Well, she did this, or he said this, or she said this, and he did this. In other words, you could rehearse in your mind, this is what they did. But the half-brother of Jesus says this in the New Testament. says, what causes the quarrels and what causes the fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then he says, you cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel. In other words, I wanted something and I didn't get it. I wanted one thing and it didn't happen. I mean, we sound like when you go back and rehearse it, it sounds like a three-year-old. I didn't get what I, I didn't get what I wanted. That's why Keller appropriately says, he says, marriage is the 18-wheeler running through your life, revealing all of its flaws. And while we tried to lay a foundation of what the theology of marriage is, what he's saying is marriage is primarily not to complete you. We dealt with that all in week one. It's not to complete you. Jesus completes you. But part of it is to conform you. I mean, think about it. When it was just you living with you, all about you, you were like, you didn't have any issues. I mean, it's like, I have no issues. But then when you have somebody else in the house, it starts to reveal stuff selfishness, impatience, all that consumer. If you do this, then I will do that. And what's the covenant say? The covenant says, no matter what, I still do. And loved ones, this is why we always, even in a book like the Song of Solomon, the thread of the gospel has to be a part of it. Because listen, how did Jesus reconcile with us? Did he sit there and claim his rights? Did he sit there and say, you know what? I'm right and you're wrong and you need to... That's not what he said. He came and rescued us. He's not in love with the future version of you. It says God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, the cross was about our conflict with God and how God responded. We had irreconcilable differences with God, and the cross showed us how he reconciled irreconcilable differences with us. And so when you talk about a grace-filled response, what you see and what you're going to see is Solomon. Solomon makes a mistake, but he also does a couple of good things. And what he does is he doesn't react. He doesn't react. This isn't fair. I worked hard. You're disrespecting me. I'm the king. You're locking me out of my own house. You don't see that. Thank God that's not the way God reacts, right? I mean, thank God that's not the way God reacts. You petulant, little, rebellious, idolaters, glory hounds. Get out of my house. That's not what he does. Instead, you see, actually, picture this. Look at Solomon, verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. 
There's already starting to be a little change. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Now, there's some confusion and some disagreement on what's going on, but if you just take it plainly, what appears to be, it's kind of weird in our culture, but it's like a Valentine's, which, by the way, month tomorrow is Valentine's, just a freebie, don't forget. Um, what happens is he's, he appears to take these spices and, like, puts them on the door handle and then leaves, which, again, that was like a Valentine's card saying, basically, I know you're mad. I know we're in conflict. I know we're not getting along, but I want you to know that I love you. Look at verse 6. I opened to my beloved, and my beloved had turned and gone. My soul, this is her talking still, my soul failed me when he spoke, and I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So we don't know how long has happened in the lapse here. But eventually she's like, man, I didn't respond correctly. And she gets up and opens the door, and he's not there. He's not there. We're going to come back to that. Is he avoiding it? We don't know. But he leaves, and he leaves her with some grace to say, you know what? I'm not reacting. I'm responding in grace. He's not blowing up. He's saying, I love you in spite of our conflict, which, again, that's the way that God treats us when we have conflict with him. What does Jesus do? He anoints the cross with his blood. That's what he does. He anoints the cross with his blood. That's, and when he does that, he takes responsibility for something that's not his fault. And that's the gospel. Guess what? When he's on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for our sin. Instead of having to be right, he focuses on the rescue. And in that grace-filled response, you see even in this poetry, her heart changes. Her heart starts to change just a little bit. Now, verse 7 is kind of a weird verse, so let me kind of explain it. Verse 7 says, The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Now, you're not going to beat up the king or the queen in that day and get away with it. So most everybody agrees this is some type of strong poetic Imagery. And even there, there's probably two things that can dovetail. First one is some people say, you know what, it's, it's, it's the idea that when she's looking for her spouse, remember, he's gone and she starts to chase through the city. Where is he? Where is he? Have you seen my spouse? Have you seen my love? Have you seen my, have you seen my gazelle? Have you seen that person? And the idea is that every time she would ask, and they're like, no, we hadn't seen him. I th we thought he was with you. It's like that bruised her emotionally. That gave her grief. And that certainly could be true. Another way to look at it, too, is the watchmen were typically God's representatives, God's representatives of God's authority in a particular city. In other words, this is God changing her heart. This is God changing her heart. If you're married or you're about to be married or want to get married, please understand this. You've got to understand the fact you cannot change your spouse. Man, this is, you cannot change your spouse. Now, they can change, and God certainly can change them. The Holy Spirit is who changes your spouse, and he doesn't need your help. As a matter of fact, sometimes when we try to help the Holy Spirit change our spouse, all we do is put an ax at the root of the tree of what God is trying to grow in our spouse's life. And so what you see here is God's changing her. Solomon just loves her just like God loved him. Now, this doesn't mean you're a doormat. It just means you respond to the situation. You respond to the situation. You don't attack each other. You attack the problem. I mean, there's this game now called pickleball. All right? Anybody say pickleball? All right? 
I've seen it. I refuse to play it, but it, they just, I'm like, I, I, I won't, but um, maybe one day. But if you think about it in this way, this kind of grace-filled response is like a game of, like a friendly game of pickleball. I mean, all you do, the, the ball is the issue. The ball is what the issue is, and you're just friendly. You're batting it back and forth, and well, what about this? And what about this? Have you thought about this? But you're not attacking each other. You're not like, swam. Boom! You're not, you're not doing that. You're just like, well, let's talk about it this way. Let's talk. Fine. But if you attack each other, everything goes south. And one of the ways that that is shown is the way that you use your words. The way you use your words. So I'm just going to put down, watch your words, and you'll see it in the text. Verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. These are her buddies. These are her friends. Some of them are her bridesmaids. If you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick with love. Now, verse 9, by the way, I'm going to give you a heads up. The, they give her some terrible advice. They do. They give her some terrible. They basically tee her up to put her husband down. And she doesn't even take the bait. But it's always a good question to say, how do you speak about your spouse? How do you talk about your wife? How do you talk about your wife when you're sitting there with the guys? Ladies, how do you talk about your husband when you're with the girls? Because she's like, i got to find my husband. i got to find my love. And here's what they say, verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved? In other words, there are plenty of fish in the sea. Oh, most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you would thus endure us? And they give, again, they give her terrible, terrible advice. And she never takes the bait. All she does is speak highly about her spouse. Most every conflict, most every conflict in marriage is the fact that is the foundation of it is she feels devalued and he feels disrespected. I know that that whole thing can be abused and it's a generality, but the reason there's a generality is because generally it's true. And so what you see, she spends the next like seven verses saying stuff, we don't even know how true it is, about her husband. So here's what happens. The Bible says, by the way, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So I'm just going to read this to you, and you're like, that ain't my husband. He got a pot belly and a, you know, nasty old shirt and never bathes, but just, hey, figure something out, all right? Figure, figure something he does well out. Here's what she says. My beloved is radiant and ready, distinguished among 10,000. My beloved is radiant and and ready. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Just work with it, ladies. Just work with it, all right? So it gets, it gets better. By the way, this is the only time in the book she actually talks about his physical traits. The other time, she's always honing in on his character, but man, she just goes all in here. His arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, but decked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns. He didn't miss leg day, men. Set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Which, by the way, really a real quick note. 
it dawned on me that, I mean, this is, she says, he's my friend. That my husband is my friend. By the way, this is, this is so, such a great picture of what God does when it comes to the whole idea of attraction and then figuring out character and then time together and holding back sex until after marriage. Because bottom line, what she's saying is our marriage is a whole bunch of friendship with some romance spiced in there. But if you put the cart before the horse and it's all based on physical attraction and sex on the, before marriage, what happens is, what happens is it's a whole bunch of romance with just a little bit of friendship. And just tease that out. If you get married and it's a whole bunch of romance and just a little bit of friendship, let me just tell you, man, time is not your friend in that regard. Gravity is not your friend in that regard. So if all you've got, let's just take the, I was like, do I actually go there? Let me, let me just go here. If that's what it, see how wise God is, is to develop a friendship that turns romantic versus romantic and try to build in friendship. I can tell you right now, my best friend is not a golfing buddy. My best friend is Lori. If I have a choice between being around one of y'all or being around her just to have fun, I'm going to pick her 10 out of 10 times. But here's the point. The point is this. I don't care how vigorous you are, young men. I don't care. It's like, oh, man, when I get married, let's, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's say you like her super, uh, superman or whatever, and you're like, man, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this and not get in trouble. Um, if it's all, you're like, man, every day, we're going to be intimate. Every day we're going to be intimate. Every day. Hour a day. You're just bragging, first of all. But let's just say you're just an hour a day, every day. Okay. That's one hour. One hour a day. What are you going to do the other 23 hours? If there's no friendship, what are you going to do the other 23 hours? If you're like, I don't even like being around her. I don't even like being around her. That's why God is so good to say, if you base... If you base it all on that, and that's why young ladies and young men, what I'm saying is when you're dating, God is not trying to withhold something from you. He is trying to sit there and allow you to experience something amazing in the right context. And so he's a good, good father. And he's like, no, it's not about trying to withhold something. It's trying to actually give you something to the fullest. And so uh, next chapter says, where's your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And... Let me give you a couple of real practical things, and, and this you see in the text, and you're going to learn them from hard knocks, and I'm going to give you some other scriptures. Let me give you a couple. How do you, how do you actually have conflict? This next five minutes is as practical as I can possibly be. How do you have conflict in a gospel-centered conversation when you disagree and you have some issues that you have to deal with in your marriage? Because that's going to happen. Here's, let me give you two. First one will take a little bit longer. Number one. And there's about 10 different ways to say this, but basically when you want to express this, use language that, des that des describe your feelings as opposed to words that describe their actions first and foremost. In other words, I feel this when you do this is much, much better than you are irresponsible. I feel disrespected when you criticize me in front of my friends. I feel devalued when 
you use all of your free time for hunting or golf or pickleball or whatever. I feel devalued when that. So what's happening is this, because the Bible says what? A gentle answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger. And so what you have to remember is this is your spouse and your goal is not to win. That's so important. Man, we got some high, I am, I'm like a lot of y'all. I'm just, I want to win all the time. And it's, we can get in that hyper-competitive mode and it bleeds over into our marriage. And if you win in conflict with your marriage, you lose. You lose. Why? Because you're on the same team. You're on the same team. And so when you guys are butting heads, you're not trying, you got to figure out, I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to rescue this thing. I mean, we had an advisor tell us years and years ago when we were kind of, you know, just butting heads. And he looks at me and he's like, and I told you this before, he's like, you want to be right or you want to be happy? I mean, he looks at me and and it sounds so wise. He's like, you want to be right or you want to be happy? And I, and I just thought about it, and I thought the flaw in that whole thing is being right makes me happy. I mean, that's, 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 that's not the attitude to have when you're in conflict, because here's the idea. If you realize that you are on the same team, and one wins and one loses, you both lose. I'll give you an easy example. Tonight, you got the Rams and the Bengals playing. How stupid would it be? If a Bengals player, let's say, let's say the Bengals are returning the kickoff. They're returning a kickoff, which means if you don't have the ball, you're supposed to block. And let's say that one Bengal player that doesn't have the ball, he goes and just lays out another Bengal player with an awesome block. I mean, decletes him, lays him out. And then he jogs back to the bench. He's like, hey, man, I laid that guy with the tiger stripe helmet. I laid him out. They would go, you fool. You fool. He's on your team. He's on your team. When you actually laid him out thinking you were doing something awesome and that you did a great block and how awesome that's going to look in the film room, that's going to look foolish because you hurt our team. And when you win and you're like, man, I showed her, I showed her, you both lose. Which, by the way, let me just say this also, men, man, this is such a hard habit to break. If your wife expresses feelings about how she feels about something, do not answer those trying to show that I have these facts and that makes your feelings invalid. I mean, don't, just don't. You're like, why not? Just don't, all right? Just don't do it. It's danger, Will Robinson. You will not like what you find there. If her feelings are like, I feel this way, you're like, well, uh, A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C, therefore your feelings are invalid. I've never, ever, 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 in 32 years of marriage, ever came out with that. And Lori's like, you know what? I am so blessed to be married to you. It is an amazing thing. Your logic is impeccable. I mean, the fact that you could put all those things together and show me how foolish my feelings are. Man, I am a blessed among women. Thank you. I don't feel that way anymore. Never, ever, ever, ever happen. Ever happen. And so just, because most of the time, for both of you, they're not, you're not looking for somebody to solve it. And it's actually sometimes just ask, you want, me to, you want me to help solve this or not? And so, um, and I would just say part of that is listening. 
You're like, I don't know what to say. Just ask some questions. I don't know what to say. Ask some questions. I don't know what to say. Just ask some more questions. I don't know what to say. Then repeat back to them what they said to you. So what you're telling me is, what you're telling me is you feel disrespected and devalued when the boys come before you. What you feel is you don't feel protected when I don't make sure that the boys treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. Yes, that's what I'm saying. We can deal, we can deal with that. Now, ladies, I picked on the guys a little bit, but what you see in the story is Solomon, Solomon leaves. Now, it's not great if you're trying to avoid conflict, but do keep in mind that generally speaking, and you can write me misogynistic emails or whatever. It's not meant to that. We said at the very start, men and women are perfectly equal, both image bearers of God, but also distinctly different. You can look at it from the chromosome level, different. I even read a study this week, even the way the brain is wired is, usually, is, is different. It's different. And one of the ways that even secular people have been able to see is different is that men process conflict differently oftentimes. And we are typically slower to try to tap into the emotions of that argument is where you can verbally process much, much quicker than we, much quicker, all right? I mean, look, I mean that even happens at a small level. I mean, Elsie Grace is 20, 20 months, and she's already like verbal, verbal, verbal. I don't think our boys actually talk to her. They're like 12 or something. I'm just saying. But, they, but, but she's already like talking stuff. And so the idea is... The, your, your husband oftentimes is not shutting down in conflict. Sometimes he is, but sometimes he's not shutting down. It just means he, and it's not that he's not invested, he just processes things a little bit different. He's stewing just a little bit, but the idea is he eventually, he eventually comes back. So let's look at this last one, and then they all kind of go together. You got the idea, it's like, all right, I'm gonna respond in grace. I'm gonna watch what, I, what comes out of my mouth, same team. But the bottom line is the one thing that holds a lot of marriages back is you, an unwillingness to release the offense. You just, you won't let it go. Bible actually says in the great love chapter that love does not keep record of wrongs, but tell you what, a lot of couples sure write that stuff down on napkins, correct? Like, oh, you remember that? So look how, look what happened here. Verse two. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. In other words, I, I know where he is. He goes back to where we met. Verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's covenant talk. He grazes among the lilies. And here's what a lot of you are thinking. It's like, man, I just, because what the world tells us is I need a new spouse. That's what the world says. You need a new spouse. And what the gospel says is you can have a new marriage with the same spouse. That's super important to understand. The world says you married the wrong person, you need a new spouse, but the gospel says you can have a new marriage with the same spouse, but you gotta learn how to release some of this. So verse four says this, you are as beautiful as Terza. That's a real pretty city back then. My love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army, and this is him talking, Awesome as an army with banners, and they're reconnecting. And here's what happens from verse 5 on. We won't read it, but from 5 on, for about four or five verses, what he does is he repeats verbatim what he told her, what we read last week on their honeymoon night. I mean, all this stuff, stuff about her teeth. 
All right? You know, your teeth are clean and white and, you know, straight and you got them all. I mean, all that kind of fancy stuff. He tells her that over and over and over again. So what's obvious here is this is not just sweeping stuff under the rug, okay? This is not just sweeping stuff under the rug. Because sweeping stuff under the rug, what happens? What happens? What happens? What happens? Look what happens. Yeah, what happens? You know what happens, all right? Here's, here's a little deal for you. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 says, forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. And then connecting to it, and the verse right next to it, it says, get rid of all bitterness, clamor, slander, and malice. Clamor is basically family strife. And the the two go together. If you sweep it under the rug, all it's going to do is build up. It's going to be building up. It's going to be like this coat right here. I shook it up, and then all of a sudden, if you want to release some, just kidding, if you want to release some pressure... If you want to release some pressure, it will just start to flow out of there. And that's why Jesus said, what? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if I'm, if I'm just holding this stuff in and I never deal with it. Now, listen, we've, dealt, we've taught on forgiveness 25 times over the years. And we talked about what it is and what it isn't and what parameters you put on there and all these kind of things. But basically what forgiveness is, is a decision that you make to release somebody from the debt they owe you because of their offense toward you. Somebody did something, your spouse said something, and when they did that, that created a debt. Forgiveness is a financial term. Something was done, now they owe you. What do they owe you? They owe you an apology. They owe you whatever. And what you're doing is like, you know what? You don't owe that to me any longer. And some of you are like, you know what? What is going to cause our family to get strong again? Last 22 months, we thought it would be heaven. It's been hell in our family. What is going to cause us to get some forward momentum back again so we actually like to be around each other? The, the answer, without a doubt, without a doubt, is forgiveness, without a doubt. Again, forgiveness is not, well, time heals all wounds. Forgiveness is not, well, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's already been brought up on your heart. You already know it's there. Why do you think... People are like, oh, you got to walk on eggshells around dad, walk on eggshells around mom. It's not because what they do is so egregious. It's mom is like a volcano. And the reason mom or dad is like a volcano is it's building up, just like the Coke. It's just building up, building up, building up. And so today, it might just be you saying, you know what, I choose to release all this stuff. And the, reason, the only reason you would do it, I mean, I know people are like, well, it's good for you. And it is good for you. It's a favor you do for you because bitterness is basically... You know, thinking, you know, drinking the poison and thinking somebody else is going to die from it. That's what bitterness is. You know, it just means I'm going to drink this up and I'm going to get them. And that's just, you're hurting yourself. But the main reason you do that is not just to help yourself. It's actually because you have a deep understanding of that's how God treated you. I mean, if you're a Christian, the most Christ-like thing you can do is forgive those people who have offended you. John Wesley is a old preacher, he had a a great illustration. He said, discovering the gospel was like learning about a rich uncle you didn't know that you had who left you $10 billion. And as you were riding to the bank to collect it, you get about a mile from the bank and one of the wheels on your carriage breaks off. What do you do? 
Do you swear and do you curse God? No, you hardly notice. You skip and run the rest of the way to the bank to collect your treasure. In other words, it's such a big deal. Why would I get so upset over this small deal? Now, I'm not saying everything that was done to you by your spouse is a small deal. Please don't misunderstand it. But what I'm saying is at some point, what you've got to come to the grips is, is you know what? How much people's grievances, just generally speaking, really bother you often show how little the gospel has actually captured us. So one of the things I said that some of y'all got a little upset about is there's not really, not deep down, not foundationally, marriage problems. Everybody has marriage problems. Every, and they're the same about eight things. It's about money or time or sex or kids or whatever. There's like eight of them. They're really, when it comes down to it, are gospel problems. I refuse to let the gospel dictate how I treat my spouse. And then it just blows up. But you look at healthy marriages, and we're going to end next week, and I'm going to show you some pictures of some, and you're going to hear some descriptors from some saints, some older couples. And they're just going to share in a three- or four-minute little clip. It's like, here's what we found out. We didn't even shot it yet, but I promise you one of them, because you saw it a couple weeks ago, is we have learned how to forgive. And so here's the deal. At some point today, you're like, well, uh, you know, he should go first. Yeah, he probably should. Probably should. Just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because again, one of the main things he's trying to teach us is how do we love people like God loved us? And one of our biggest fears of doing the Song of Solomon and all the marriage stuff and relationship stuff is thinking that you would think, you know what? I'm glad I got those four points and those three points for gospel-centered sex and all this kind of stuff. And you would miss the fact that you can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you do not have. You can't give forgiveness if you don't have forgiveness. How are you going to give grace if you don't understand what grace is? So we can talk all day long about, you know what? If God can resurrect Jesus from the dead, then he can resurrect your marriage, certainly, and that's true. But the question is, has he resurrected you? That's the question. You're like, well, we've been going here a long time, and, you know, we, my family's always gone to church. You've got to understand, God doesn't save last names. He saves first names. You understand that? God doesn't say last names. Well, your last name is Frank, and I see your grandmama was a good church. No, that's not what he does. He didn't say last names. He says first names. And so what you have to ask is he saved me, first name. First name. I mean, that can happen right now at church, right now at church. Your eyes open. Your eyes open. About every two months, it'll just, I'll say it's as simple as ABC, ABC. A is for admit. I got to admit I'm a sinner. I have to admit I'm a sinner. You're not a mistaker. You're not a mistake or in need of a teacher. You're a sinner in need of a savior. That's why you were so bad, Jesus had to die on a cross for you. You're like, well, I'm better than some of your deacons. Well, raise the bar, bro. I'm just saying, that's not the bar. That's not the bar, all right? I love my deacons. I'm just saying, that's not the bar, all right? The bar is a holy God, and you and I have all broken that, every one of the Ten Commandments and the other 600 as well. Admit I'm a sinner. Second was believe, believe that when Jesus died on that cross, somehow, somehow, when he said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, that somehow that counted for me. That counted for me. That's personally brought into my life, and then C is confess Jesus as Lord. That means I'm not the boss of me anymore. He's the boss. He's the master. God, I want to give everything I've got to you. You're the boss. You're the master. The Bible calls that repentance. I'm turning my life around. I'm turning to him. 
Doesn't mean that you're saying I'm going to get perfect and then come to him. It says I'm coming to him, but I'm asking and I'm willing for him to change my life. So what you got to ask is, is that, is that you? Is that you?